Well, Aaron and I had been married less than a month. Uh, we had just gotten our new apartment in Arlington, Virginia. We had no working TV. Uh, we uh, were young in love, and uh, we uh, also didn't, our jobs didn't start for a couple more weeks in the D.C. area. And uh, it was nice to be able to sleep in, and we're waking up in the morning at like 9, 9.30, and then uh, we see that we lived right by the interstate, I-66, in Arlington, Virginia, and uh, it was weird. All the traffic had stopped on I-66, and then we had noticed that men and women were just walking down the interstate. Their shoes were off, they had their suits on. And they were just walking down the interstate. And we walked outside and we were wondering what was going on. And someone uh, said to us in the complex, don't you know a plane has hit the Pentagon? And at that point in time, we were just in shock. Especially being in the nation's capital that time and we were both going to work in the city. And uh, really, from that day on, for weeks, for months, we lived in a city that was kind of just in shock, and it was surreal. We often drove by the Pentagon, and that's where we went to go shopping. And as we drove by it, uh, just a couple weeks later, you could see the wreckage in the side of the building right off the highway. And it was just... There's no words to describe it. I mean, this was the institution of strength of America, uh, of American power and military might, and it had been hit. And then, of course, those images of the towers falling and being toppled also just shocked us as a nation and hit us hard. Well, today in this passage, we are going to see Jesus foretelling another building collapsing. A building at the core of Israelite culture, of its religion, of its political life. And he's going to tell about the destruction of this thing. And we're going to see the disciples in their shock, and a nation in shock by such a thing that might happen. The question I want to ask us this morning is this, why does Jesus tell us of this future destruction? What does it say to the disciples he's talking to at this point? And what does it say to us? Why does Jesus tell of this future destruction? And we're going to see the shock that would come if such a thing would happen and what Jesus is trying to communicate in it. So let's read the scriptures together. I'm going to read chapter 21, verses 5 through 9. Then I'm going to read verses 20 through 24. And then the the part I'm going to emphasize the most this morning, verses 29 through 33. So let us pay attention to God's word as I read it this morning. And while some were speaking of the temple, how it was adorned with noble stones and offerings... He said, as for these things that you see, the day will come when there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And they asked him, teacher, when will these things be? 
And what will be the sign when these things are about to take place? And he said, see that you are not led astray. For many will come in my name saying, I am he. And the time is at hand. Do not go after them. And when they hear of wars and tumults, do not be terrified. For these things must first take place, but the end will not be at once. But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has come near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. and Let those who are inside the city depart. And let not those who are out in the country enter it. For these are days of vengeance to fulfill all that is written. Alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days. For there will be great distress upon the earth and wrath against this people. They will fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive among all nations. And Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the, gen- um, of the Gentiles are fulfilled. And then verse 29, and he told them a parable. Look at the fig tree and all the trees. As soon as they come out in leaf, you see for yourselves and know that the summer is already near. So also, when you see these things taking place, you know that the kingdom of God is near. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all has taken place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But watch yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and cares of this life. And that day come upon you suddenly like a trap. For it will come upon all who dwell on the face of the whole earth. But stay awake at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. He who has ears, let them hear. Grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray. God, these are not easy words. And uh, we need your wisdom in being able to unpack them and see them and understand how they apply to us today. God, give us much grace as we look at this this morning and let us uh, kind of figure out how this might apply to us and might speak to us in our age. In your son's name we pray, amen. Well, if you're just joining us, we've been going through the book of Luke. We started in the winter and we're going all the way until uh, the month of June and then we will start Psalms. And as I said, uh, if you really want to do Luke justice, you'd have to spend a couple years in the book to be able to cover every single portion of what the book talks about. So we've kind of tried to at least grab some of each chapter as we go on. And I'm telling you, uh, I would like to skip this chapter. You know, uh, this is one that uh, I wouldn't mind being able to just kind of pass over. But that's part of the problem with uh, this plan that I have, that we're going to look at all the scripture and believing that all of it is God-breathed, that all of it is important. And when Jesus talks about apocalyptic things, end of times kind of things, destruction kind of things, he doesn't talk about it just a little bit. He talks about it a lot. And uh, if I skipped it, um, that would not do justice to the words of Jesus, We love the stories of the prodigal son and Zacchaeus and stories about Mary and Martha, Uh, but uh, sometimes we don't like hearing uh, these kind of messages about apocalyptic eschatological language. And I'll tell you, much ink has been spilled on these topics. Books upon books, 
theses, people's livelihoods have been built on this thinking about end times stuff. And they use huge words and put it into categories like preterism and eschatology and dispensational premillennialism and historical premillennialism and amillennialism and postmillennialism and pre-tribulation and mid-tribulation and post-tribulation. We can have all these fun words and we can put all these people in different camps and we can have debates with our friends about what you think Jesus will do, how he's going to come back. It's a lot of fun. I'm not going to have that kind of fun this morning, okay? If you are the kind of person that likes to have that kind of fun, I would love to talk offline with you about where I stand on the end times and we can have those discussions. I am thankful that we are in a denomination, uh, which is not a lot of evangelical denominations. We're in one where there's a lot of openness on where people can be on end time stuff, which I think is good because I kind of think that these kind of scriptures are not as plain as others, The Westminster Confession says it really well. It says, all things in scripture are not alike plain in themselves, nor alike clear unto all. I can say as a pastor about God's word, there are some parts in God's words that are more confusing than others and hard to understand. And there is much debate on, and we can be gray about them. That does not mean that the scripture is not clear on how we are saved in the message of Jesus Christ, okay? Do you hear that? Scripture is clear enough that we know the way of salvation, but in some sections, it's not clear on how we understand certain issues, okay? This is one of those chapters, okay? And if you don't believe me, uh, I encourage you to ask uh, different pastors where they stand on end times thoughts and you'll get a lot of different opinions, sometimes some more passionate than others. But hopefully we can still learn from this scripture this morning and uh, it can teach us something about how we're to live, something about how uh, Jesus speaks to us. That said, I want to give us some tools, some arsenal for when we look at prophetic literature like this, How are we supposed to just start looking at what are some ways that we're supposed to look at it hermeneutically, meaning how we unpack the scripture and look at it. I want to give some of those tools to you. When you read some of these language in Ezekiel or Daniel or in Jesus Jesus or in Revelation, some of these um, apocalyptic end times kind of literature. Okay, so first lesson is this. Uh, it is that I am not going to pull out um, the paper, okay? I am not going to talk about what happened in the Middle East um, just yesterday or what's happening throughout the world and then go, what I read here is what I read in Scripture. I'm not going to do that, okay? Um, And I think uh, if you uh, talk to different pastors or maybe here on the radio, Uh, There are many people out there that like to predict the end of the world and the end of the age. And uh, they like to take what's seen in the current culture and be able to say, look, the end is coming. I want to say this. There is nothing new under the sun. Okay. This has been happening since the beginning of the church. 
Okay? When the temple fell, people said, it's the end. When the Roman Empire collapsed, people said, it's the end of the world. When the plagues hit in the Middle Ages, they said, this is the end. It's over. When the selling of indulgences by the Catholic Church and the corruption of the popes happened, you know what the reformers called the pope? The Antichrist. (laughs) They thought that was the end. In the 19th century, during the revivals of religion, in the Second Great Awakening, there were people all over the United States that got camps of people together and predicted the day that would come and the hour, and they all sold everything they had and said, it's going to happen here and then. And it didn't happen. World War II, people said, it was over. I was just listening to a sermon by Martin Lloyd-Jones after the World War II in the Cold War era. And he said, oh man, the times are bad. With nuclear arms race all over, who knows when the world might end. So the atomic bomb. And then more recently, not just from Christians, through secularists, Stephen Hawking and Elon Musk, They say, you know, in 50 years, the world and humanity will be over because AI will come and destroy us all. There's nothing new under the sun. Everyone loves to predict when the world will end. And it is an obsession. So principle one is this. I hope we can all agree on this. I hope we can. We don't know when the world is going to end. Can we agree with that? We don't know. And you know what Jesus says in Mark? The son of God doesn't even know when the father is going to end the world. Now that's a little bit complex to me, understanding the Trinity, that not even the son can know when the father is going to end it. But that's what it says. That even Jesus doesn't know when the time will be. When the father will end. So if Jesus doesn't know, then I hope we don't presume that we know. Okay, that's principle one. But I, I, I want some pushback on this. People will say, well, you can still see the signs, Dan. You can still see, you know, the pains in creation of when it might be coming. Well, I want to speak to that. And this is my second principle. When reading these passages... We have to read forward from the first century rather than backwards from the 21st century. Hear me again. When reading these passages, we have to read forward from the context of where it is there in the first century than instead looking at what's happening now and looking backwards. So it's important that we understand the historical context first. I know I may be boring some of you by hermeneutical talk, but... I, I kind of look at it like a pirate spyglass. You know, those ones that extend like that, right? That's how we should look at prophetic literature. At first, we're looking something close. You know, the eyeglass is a little bit um, shallower, right? And um, we look at what's happening right there in the context. What's going to happen right then if I read Isaiah or Ezekiel or Daniel? I'm going to look at how that prophecy speaks to that situation that's happening in the Old Testament there with the nation of Israel. Then, if I want to look further, I'll extend it a little bit further. How does this speak to not just what's going to happen a little bit after this prophecy, but how is it going to speak later in the history of Christendom and how it applies into the life of Jesus Christ in the New Testament? 
So I extend the eyeglass a little bit further. And then, if I want to say, how does this apply to us today and further in history? I extend the eyeglass even further. You see, prophecy speaks to each one of those eras. But I think that prophecy is most clear, you know, when you get the binoculars, right? When you get to the right place where you can see the objects you're looking at, it is most clear. We can understand it the most clearly when we look at it through God's redemptive story in Jesus Christ. Okay? We many times get confused about things that are happening around us or how the end of the world might end or everything. That is many times we get out of focus in those places. But when we can look at it through God's redemptive plan through Christ, it can be most clearly seen. That said, let's take the eyeglass and look most clearly what is happening in the context right here in this passage. And this is what happens. Jesus is uh, doing the Olivet Discourse. It's a famous passage that's found in Matthew and Mark and in the book of Luke. It's a time in Jesus' last week of his life where he travels with his disciples up to this mountain just two miles east of Jerusalem. It's about 2,000 feet high, and it was at an elevation where you could be able to look down onto the city of Jerusalem. And here, he's with his disciples on this mountain, and the disciples are commenting, oh, just look at the temple. You can see it from up there. Look at the temple, how ornate it is. Look at its stones. Look at its opulence. Look how magnificent it is. And the thing is, the temple, Jesus was in there just a little bit earlier in his last week of life teaching. The temple was great in this sense that Jesus has been dividing all these people, the Pharisees in one group and the Sadducees and the Herodians and uh, the disciples. All these different groups are divided in Israel, the Essenes, all these different groups. But there's one thing that they're united about. The temple. (laughs) You know, Herod spent money on building the temple and people hated Herod. The Pharisees spent time in the temple, but the Pharisees were hated by the Herodians. So you can say all these groups hate each other, but they are all together in the temple. So there's anything that everyone can be united about. It's God's presence, our political power, our existence of Israel. The thing that we can cling to is right there in the temple. And here the disciples are saying, at least we got that together. Look at what has been built, the temple. And what does Jesus say? (laughs) He says it will be destroyed. So again, it says, he predicts, teacher, he says, um, as for these things that you see, the days will come when there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Jesus predicts the end of this religious institution. Okay, it's hard for us to fathom, and that's why I use that 9-11 example. As we saw the Twin Towers fall, and we saw images of the Pentagon, we saw a glimpse of our institutions collapsing. The temple collapsing would take that to even a greater level. 
it would be the White House gone, the Capitol gone. It would be um, the major places of American institutions destroyed, no longer. For the Israelites at that time, for the disciples, if the temple was destroyed, it would mean the end of the age. It would be the end of the world. It would be the end of society. It would be done. The dwelling place of God is gone. So therefore, that must mean that God is coming back. For them, for the disciples, the destruction of temple also meant the end of the world. Those two things were one in the same. But what Jesus is trying to communicate to them in this passage is that they're not one in the same. The temple's destruction is not equal to my second coming, my coming back in judgment. And so you will see that Jesus is trying to explain that to him. And this is how he explains it. He does it through a parable. And on the Mount of Olives, there are many fig trees. And it was also the time of Passover, which is a lot of our time right now. So the fruits of the, um, of the trees are blooming. And he's looking at this fig tree that is blooming. And he says, you see, as this fig tree is blooming, you know that the fruit will come. It is a sign that things will come. In the same way, these different acts that are going to happen, these different times of destruction, these things that you will see will be signs That the fruit will come, meaning the end of the temple is coming. And that is what he's trying to communicate to to them. The destruction of the temple will come. Now, many people might disagree with me here, but I want to argue this case on verse 32 specifically. Jesus says, truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all has taken place. So some people argue what Jesus is talking about here is about the end of time. And I'm saying, no, Jesus, what he's talking about is the end of the temple. Okay? And I think verse 32 proves that point. Because if Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all this has taken place. We know that Jesus did not come back a second time within the disciples' generation. So what therefore is he talking about? Was he wrong? Did he not get it right? No. Jesus is saying, this truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all has taken place. Meaning all of these things leading up to the destruction of the temple. Like false messiahs. We saw in 30 to 70 AD, the plethora of false messiahs coming up. Acts picks out Theodos, who says he is the Messiah. Josephus, the ancient historian that talks about the first century, talks about many false prophets that come in that time. Wars and rumors of wars were another thing. The Jewish revolts happened from 30 to 70 AD. Tens of thousands of Jews in revolting against Rome were killed. Earthquakes and natural disasters. The earthquake of Laodicea. The eruption of Mount Pompeii happened during those times. Persecution happened. Nero, the emperor of Rome, persecuted Christians at that time. Also Jews were persecuted and were sent out of Rome. Persecution was happening. 
the gospel to all the nations. In the books of Acts from 30 to 70 AD, it talks about missionaries being supplied and going out through all the nations and spreading the gospel. We just talked about it today, about Pentecost, coming in tongues, and to be able to speak in different languages to all the different nations. And then, what no one thought would happen in 70 AD, the temple was destroyed. You see, Jesus was predicting what would happen in that era and the time right after the disciples. That lens just right there. And how the disciples interpreted this passage, and I've been around many people that argue against Christianity, and one argument that I do hear from people is Jesus said he was going to come back in that era and he did not. So therefore, he is wrong. I want to give pushback against that idea because if the disciples interpreted this passage as Jesus was going to come back in their lifetime, why did they continue to spread the gospel even past themselves? You see, For many people that saw the destruction of the temple, that saw this is the end of Judaism as we know it, the disciples, in fact, it encouraged them. (laughs) It made them say, no, Jesus predicted this. He predicted this would happen. And therefore is showing that we need to spread the message of the kingdom even more because the kingdom wasn't found in the temple. Instead, the kingdom was found in Christ. You see, for, for the Jews and those around that religious establishment, the end of the temple must have discouraged them greatly. But for the Christian, it might have said, you know what? Sacrifices are not found in the temple. Instead, the sacrifice was found in Jesus Christ on the cross. Forgiveness is not found in priests at the temple. Behind the curtain, no, the veil has been torn in two and we can receive forgiveness directly through Jesus Christ. The presence of God is not just found in that dwelling place of the temple and said the presence of God can be found in dwelling with the Holy Spirit that is given to each of us. The destruction of the temple did not discourage the disciples. It encouraged them and pushed them forward to say, Jesus has predicted such a thing to happen. And this is the kingdom that he said is going to come. It will dwell not in a place, but it will dwell in the place of men. It's very interesting that when... uh, the Christians did see the signs of this kind of destruction happening in Jerusalem. Many, many of the Christians left Jerusalem at that time in the late 60s and moved to a place called Pella, which we have Pella, Iowa, which makes sense. The Dutch kind of reformers removing themselves from other places in the world. They wanted to form their own little community. But Pella was a community, a Christian community that was founded in Israel during that time while the temple was destroyed and many Jews were killed because of the Jewish revolt. So that said, I want us to make sure that when we look at Jesus' prophecies, we look what he predicts, we have to look first at what he's talking about directly in that time. That is the first lens. Now, before anyone starts labeling Dan, oh, you're an amillennial guy, or you're a preterist. If you guys don't know that language, it's okay. 
not a preterist, okay? I believe that even these kind of prophecies can speak to us today. It can speak to our kind of situations that we're facing. And that's why we have to take the lens out a little further. Again, it's most clearly represented the time of Jerusalem. But I think this kind of things of Jesus talking about the end of the age. In Matthew, it's more better delineated. And in verses 34, I think there's a time that Jesus talks about what happens to Jerusalem at the temple and then what's going to happen at time at my second coming. And I think here, Jesus is now talking not just what's going to happen in Israel, but what's going to happen throughout in the world. And what is going to happen in the world is this, is that Jesus is going to come again and he is going to judge this world. There will be signs of it and we've experienced all these signs that have been said already. Those happen throughout the world. Persecution, the gospel to all the nations, earthquakes, natural disasters, wars, rumors of wars, all of those things have already occurred. But I think this, when Jesus comes again, he will come in final judgment. It will be it. This will be Jesus coming to judge the world. He will come again in power. And this is what he says. I think it's really good. Verse 34. But watch yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and cares of this life. So any of us that worry and say, oh great, Jesus is going to come down on the throne with judgment upon the world. He says, not let your hearts be weighed down by this thinking. Instead of saying, oh no, judgment is coming. I hope all of us would be in the place when Jesus comes back again, we would not say, oh no, but we say, oh yes, your kingdom finally come. That said, I want to give some applications to us about this passage and what it speaks to us. I'm going to do it with four applications, okay? Application number one. Live as if this is not the end game. This world is not the end game. Dissipation means interest in pleasures. Drunkenness shows signs of people that say, uh, you know what? Eat, drink, and be merry because this is all you get. You know, if this is all that there is in this world, I might as well live it up now. My hope is in just hedonistic pleasures. But no, Jesus says, our hope is not simply in this world. Our hope is in the world to come. And every moment we use on this earth is used as a servant here that will echo in eternity. Echo in the extents of the eternal kingdom to come. So live as if this isn't the end game. Number two, live as if you want the kingdom to arrive on this earth. One of the biggest criticisms of Christianity, specifically in the 19th century, by communists and socialists, is that Christianity is just opium for the masses. Basically, all they do is hope in what is going to come. They don't have any action now. They're just hoping what's going to come later. So they just sit and wait. But I don't think Jesus is telling us to sit and wait. He is telling us to live like the kingdom of earth will come. He wants us to live that we would establish the kingdom here, a new heavens and a new earth. 
And the truth is, and this is why I would push back against that kind of thinking by socialists and communists, that if you are a Christian and you believe that the end is going to come and it will be better in heaven, that I will even sacrifice now. I will be more generous. I will give my very life because I know that it will be that way later. I will give everything that I have now. I won't just think that all the world is, is right here. I will actually sacrifice everything I have here knowing that that is the way the kingdom will be later. So live like you want the kingdom of God to come in this place. Next, do not be anxious or apprehensive about the future. When the temple fell, the people were given new resolve. When Rome fell, Augustine wrote the city of God. And he said this, many people were panicking. Oh, the Roman civilization is gone. But instead it brought new encouragement to Christendom. And they, Augustine taught in the city of God this, that our hope is not in the Roman Empire. Our hope is in the kingdom of God. Do not be anxious or apprehensive today. When is the economic bubble going to pop? When is ISIS going to come across the sea? When is the sexual ethics of America going to destroy this country, which many Christians worry about? We should not have heavy hearts, should we? We should not have heavy hearts. We do not believe that temples made of ivory is what our salvation is. Instead, we follow one that was crucified on the cross that set up a new kingdom. I, I'm telling you, I hope we're not apprehensive as Christians. That we go, oh man, troubles are brewing. You saw what happened in Ireland. You see what's happening with ISIS. You see what's happening there. Oh no, this world is, is in major trouble. I'm not, I'm not worried about that. Because this is not all that there is. God will come again. He knows when he's going to come. We do not know. We do not love in fear or apprehension. This world he has a plan for. Do we live like that as Christians? Or do we just worry about the apocalypse and worry about what's going to happen? I would hope, in a, I think we live in a major society of fear right now, that we say, I, I don't have fear. Because God is not surprised. And he knows what is going to happen in this place. Next, we should live as preparers for the kingdom, not preppers. Okay? Our hope is not to be one step ahead of the zombie apocalypse, folks. Or a market collapse. Or a global meltdown. Where we are hoarding all the stuff we can. Where we get bomb shelters or whatever it might be. No, we don't live for our own survival. We live for the extension of the kingdom, laying down our lives for others. You know, faith and panic are not a good marriage together. It just can't be. Faith and panic don't go together. Faith is trust in what God is going to do, that he is going to come back. 
Do you think that the disciples lived in a state of panic? They could have. With all the things they saw that were happening around them. By their friends being killed. No, they lived in knowing that their hope was in Christ. And they even laid down their lives for it. And they also served others while facing persecution. Christian, in comfort, if you're not serving your neighbor, what will you do in crisis? <laughs> in comfort, if we're not even serving our neighbors, what are we going to do in crisis? You know, after 9-11, the churches were packed. They were filled. And people are realizing there is more to this world than the American kingdom. There is somewhere else that I need to look to than in this place. Imagine Theophilus. You know who Theophilus was? He was the guy that received this letter from Luke. This is Luke's friend. Imagine Theophilus in 70 AD when he heard the news the temple is destroyed. And he had read this, that Luke had given to him, this letter. And Theophilus was probably around Jews and in Jewish culture and people were going, whoa, this is crazy. The temple is destroyed. The diaspora has happened. Jews are spread everywhere. What is going to happen to this world? And Theophilus had read what Jesus had said in Luke chapter 21. Imagine what he might have been going on in his head. Maybe Jesus is the king after all. Maybe my friend Luke is right. Maybe what Jesus says about this world is true. Do you know that Jesus has come? He has come to be the king over this world. And he's offering you to be a part of that kingdom. I pray that you would see him, the king. Because he will come again. And he will come again in judgment. And when he comes and you don't know him, I don't want you to say, I guess he was king after all. Instead, I want you to say now, he is the king. He is the one that rules. He is the one that reigns. He has a plan for this world and he will make a new heavens and a new earth. And this, this life is just a blip. There will be eternity. Do you live in that reality? Or do you live in the city of man? rather than the city of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, there is much we can learn from your literature and your words about the apocalypse. And God, I pray that it would not bring us to fear, but it drive us to faith in you and trust in what is going to come. Lord, help us as Christians to look upwards and say, God, we want you to come. We want your kingdom to be here, but also to work 
on this earth horizontally and say, God, let your kingdom come to this place. Pray these things in your son's name. Amen.